Section 9 of Ruth of Boston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ruth of Boston, a story of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, by James Otis. Section 9 Building a Ship. Although in my own mind, there was never any doubt but that the land was rightfully ours without consulting a savage about it. Yet I believe, from all I heard said, that our people felt better in mind after this Indian chief had agreed to our staying here, for it seemed as if he had no sooner made the bargain than work was pushed forward more as it would have been done in England. As, for instance, Governor Winthrop had been building a vessel— and now, if you please, we are to have a ship of our own, made in Boston, launched in Boston, and to sail from Boston. When she is finished, and has sailed to Southampton or Liverpool, the people there must begin to believe that we of the Massachusetts Bay Colony are getting well on in the world if we can own fleets, for in case one vessel can be built, there is no reason why we would not have many while there is so much of lumber everywhere around. HOUSEHOLD CONVENIENCES Do you know what a Betty lamp is? We have two in our house, which were brought over by Captain Pierce of the Lion, as a gift to my mother. You, who have more or less trouble with your rush-lights, cannot fancy how luxurious it is to have one of these Betty lamps, which costs, in care, no more than is required to fill them with grease or oil. Fearing lest you may not know what these lamps are, which Susan's mother says should be called brown Betty's, I will do my best to set down here such a description as shall bring them before you. The two which we have are made of brass, but Captain Pierce says they are also to be found of pewter or of iron. These are round, and are very much the same shape as half an apple, save that they have a nose an inch or two long, which sticks out from the side. The body of the bowl is filled with tallow or grease, and the wick, or a piece of twisted cloth, is threaded into the nose, with one end hanging out to be lighted. Ours hang by chains from the ceiling, and the light which they give is certainly equal to, if not stronger than, that of a wax candle. But they are not so cleanly, because if the wick be ever so little too long, the lamps send forth a great smoke." Father says he has seen a Phoebe lamp, which is much like our Betty lamps, save that it has a small cup underneath the nose to catch the dripping grease, and that, I think, would be a great improvement, if indeed it is possible to improve upon so useful an article of household furniture as this. Speaking of our Betty lamps reminds me that Susan's mother had sent over to her in the lion a set of cob irons, which are something after the fashion of andirons or fire-dogs, save that they are also intended to hold the spit and the dripping-pan. She had also a pair of creepers, which are small andirons, and which she sometimes used with the cob-irons. The andirons which we brought from England are much too fine to be used in this fireplace, which is filled with pot-hooks, trammels, hakes, and other cooking utensils. They were a wedding present to my mother, and are in what we call sets of three, meaning that on each side of the fireplace are three andirons, one to hold the heavy logs that arc at the bottom of the fire, 
another raised still higher to bear the weight of the smaller sticks, and a third for much the same purpose as the second, or perhaps to make up more of an ornament, for they are of iron and brass, and are exceeding beautiful to look upon. I have used the words trammels and hakes, but it is possible that you may not know their meaning, and so I will add by way of explanation, that though they are both hooks upon which we may hang pots and kettles, the trammel is so constructed that it may be lengthened or shortened, being made of two parts. HOW THE WORK IS DIVIDED There is no good reason why I should make any attempt at setting down here all that was done by our people in the way of planting, in order that we might have such a harvest in the fall as would put far from us the fear of another famine. It should be easy for you to fancy how we are employed here in this new town. Some of the men are working at the palisade, or barricade, on the neck. Others are in the field planting and hoeing, while yet another company is in the shipyard on the Mystic River. Ten or twelve of the people are constantly fishing or hunting, to add to the food supply, while those serving men or laborers who are not skilled at other work are cutting trees into fuel and otherwise clearing the land that it may be tilled another year. The women and children are no less busy, and it is easy for you to guess what their duties are. These log-houses, while not requiring as much care as if they were mansions, need very much in the way of woman's work. Lest the shiftless ones, who have no pride in the appearance of the town, or are too lazy to do other than what may be absolutely necessary, should allow the dirt to gather round about the outside of the houses. A law has been made obliging each person to keep free from dirt or filth of any kind. All the land surrounding his dwelling for a distance of fifty paces, whether in the street or garden, and it is upon us children that this last work falls. Save for the babies, and those who are abed with sickness, there are no idle ones in Boston, and well indeed it should be so. For it surely is true, that Satan finds some mischief still for idle hands to do. If we were not busily engaged during all waking hours, then would we have opportunity to grow homesick, for much as we are growing to like this new world, there will come now and then thoughts of the homes we left in England, and one's heart falls sad at realizing that, perhaps, Never again will we see those whom we left behind when the Arabella sailed out of Southampton. Launching the Ship It is not well that I let my mind go back into the past. I should think only of the future, and of what we are doing here in Boston, the most important of which just now is the launching of our ship. She is what sailors call bark-rigged, which is the same as saying that she has three masts, but yet not as much of rigging as a ship. Her name, painted on the stern, is Blessing of the Bay, and there is hardly any need for me to say that every man, woman, and child in the town stood near at hand to see her as she slipped down the well-greased ways into the river, where she rode as gracefully as a swan. I have already said that when the lion came in, at the time of the famine, she appeared the most beautiful vessel I had ever seen, and next to her comes the blessing of the bay. As Governor Winthrop said in the short lecture he gave us before launching, she was Boston-made, of Boston timber, 
and would be sailed by Boston sailors, so that when she goes out across the ocean, people shall know that there are Englishmen far overseas who are striving, with God's help, to make a country which shall one day stand equal with the England we have left for ever. It is while speaking of the launching that I am reminded of a very comical mishap to Master Winthrop, and I may set it down without disrespect to him, for he is pleased to join in the mirth whenever it is spoken of as something to cause laughter. Master Winthrop's Mishap It seems that the wolves had been worrying some of the goats that Master Winthrop brought over to this country with him, and on a certain day, after supper, he went out with his gun in the hope of billing a few of the ravenous beasts. He had not travelled more than half a mile from home when night came on, and turning about to go back, as was prudent, for it is not safe that one man shall be alone in the forest after dark, because of the wild animals, he mistook his path, wandering directly away from the river instead of toward it. I myself have heard him say that he must have walked a full hour, and was growing exceeding uncomfortable in mind, when he came to an Indian hut that was built of branches of trees and of skins, so that it formed a fairly comfortable dwelling, and was of sufficient strength to resist the efforts of any one to enter, save through the door. There was no person inside this hut or wigwam. The door was unfastened, and the governor, understanding that he must have some shelter during the night, else was he in danger of being devoured by wild beasts, entered as if it were his own dwelling. With his flint and steel he built a fire, and by its light saw piled up in one corner of the place mats such as the savages used to sleep upon. Having taken a mouthful of snakeweed, which is said to be of great benefit in quieting one's nerves, and prayed to God for safe keeping during the night, he lay down. Before much time had passed, and certainly while his eyes were yet wide open, it began to rain, and some of the water finding its way through the carelessly thatched roof disturbed his rest, so that it was impossible to sleep. He spent the night singing psalms, gathering such wood as he could handily come at from the outside to keep the fire going, and pacing to and fro in the narrow space until near to daylight when an Indian squaw came that way. The governor, hearing her voice as she cried out to whosoever owned the hut, and was evidently a friend of hers, barred the door as best he might, while she stood on the outside beating it with her hands, and calling aloud in the Indian language, first in friendly terms, and then angrily. But yet he made no reply. The door held firm against her efforts until day came, when the governor walked out of the hut, not dreaming the woman would make an attack upon him but straightway he was forced to take to his heels, or, as he laughingly declared, she would have clawed out his eyes. Although we children knew nothing whatsoever concerning it, the chief men of the town had been greatly alarmed because of the governor's disappearance, and during the whole of the night no less than twenty had walked to and fro in the forest hunting for him, but by an unkind chance never going in the direction of this hut. When Master Winthrop made his appearance, it had just been said that a hue and cry should be raised, and all the men in Boston be called to aid in the search. End of section 9